Today's scripture text comes from Nehemiah 6. Now, when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, and let us meet together at Hecaphirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm, and I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking, Their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delaiah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the twenty-fifth day of the month Elul, in fifty-two days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them, for many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, of the son of Era, and his son Jehohanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Bechariah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence, and reported my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. The word of our Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the narrative of Nehemiah, which is a narrative of your faithfulness. This isn't about Nehemiah, this is about you. 
Every time that we see Nehemiah is afraid, every time that we see that he is taunted to, to step away from the work that you've called him to, he runs to you and you strengthen him. And you give him perseverance to endure through your spirit. Father, would you uproot the enemy's schemes in our lives this morning? Would you confront us in such a way where we're almost uncomfortable because we see with such a clarity the schemes of the enemy in our lives? Would you do that good work through your word this morning? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So it's our birthday. That's fun, right? That's good. That's good. It's our birthday. So I was thinking, we're now at the toddler stage of a church. We're entering into the age that some of you that have had two-year-olds call the terrible twos. Now, I'm not sure what that means for our church plan. I hope that it doesn't mean that it's a terrible second year, but we're entering into toddler stage. You know, I was thinking we all develop a little differently, don't we? Some of us started walking when we were like six months old. Uh, Others of us, you know, uh, potty trained when we were two years old. Others of us, like myself, like six. Um, You know, we're all, you can ask my mom next time she's here, I promise. It's embarrassing, but anyway. It's neither here uh, nor there. But we all develop a little bit differently. And one of the ways that we develop, if we're honest, is in how we view fear and what the object of our fear is and how it shifts and it changes over time. For instance, my daughter that's six years old is afraid of some things. I look at the things that she's afraid of and think they're absolutely silly. So for instance, uh, she's been waking up a lot in the middle of the night, calling out to mom and dad, like in, like in a panic, like in a, just, a, just in a, a wailing scream. When you're in the middle of sleep and you hear a wailing scream like, like someone is taking her out of the house, right? I mean, it's, you wake up, your heartbeat is racing, you fly up the steps and you're like, where's he at? I'm going to get him. Those of you that are parents know what I'm talking about. So finally, this is going on for a couple weeks or a couple years, I can't remember. It's been going on for a while. And finally, we get the, the courage... And the audacity to say, Tatum, what are you afraid of? And she opens her closet door and she points like this. So in her closet, there is this little attic access door. And as I looked at it, I was like, okay, that's kind of creepy. <laughs> I mean, I can understand where you're coming from here. And, and it, it, just like in a moment of uh, adrenaline, this scene from a movie called Major Pain comes to mind. Major Payne is, uh, one of the main characters of the movie is Damon Wayans, and he's this drill sergeant. And uh, he's got this little cadet that he's training uh, in this military school, and this guy, this little guy's getting scared of the bad man in the closet. And so what does Damon Wayans do one night? He kind of gets fed up with it. He walks into the room, he's like, show me where the bad man's at, and the little kid points, he's like, he's right over there. He pulls out his forty-five and fires like six rounds into the closet, and then he says something like this, if he's still in there, he ain't happy. And so in that same kind of attitude, I went downstairs to grab a gun, but it was a drill gun. It was in a 45, and I grabbed a handful of screws, and I went up to that door, and I began screwing the door shut, and I kind of said something to the same effect, if they're still in the closet, they ain't getting to you, baby. And uh, she thought that was funny. So uh, the the little creepy door in her closet is now shut. But fear, fear for us is a relative thing, is it not? You're not afraid of the bad man in your closet anymore, at least most of you are not, and if you are, you're not willing to admit it anymore. Um, But you're afraid of other things. You're afraid of more mature things. You've moved on to to better fears, you might say. 
You know, you've moved on to, to be afraid of things like how much money you've got and where you're going to live. And as Phil said earlier, am I going to have a job? All of these things where my daughter would look at those things and say, those are silly things to be afraid of, Daddy. Why don't you just trust the Lord? You know, she would say something like that, and I would look at her and kind of uh, belittle her fear as well. But the, the reality is this, is that fear is real for all of us. It was real for Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter 6. And God wants to deal with us in that manner today. So the question we have is, where is freedom found for us in the midst of fear? Where do we find relief? And I think it's found in how we answer this question. Who do we believe God to be? What is the character of God? What is the nature of God? What is the power of God? Because in the Scriptures, there's only one type of fear that's prescribed for those that would follow God. It's a fear of the Lord. And it's one of those things that I think we kind of belittle a lot of times, you could describe the fear of the Lord like this, an awareness of His love, of His justice, of His mercy that drives us to consider His voice above all others. That's what the fear of the Lord is. It's an awe that overcomes us and overcomes every, every peripheral circumstance that could take us away from His presence. So the, the big idea of where we're going today in Nehemiah 6 is this. It's an awe of God displaces fears many faces. And awe of God displaces fears many faces. So the question that we're going to consider, the question that I've been asking the Holy Spirit to press into each of you this morning, consider in your own life as you hear these words, and consider in your own heart as you hear these words, is, is my awe of God displacing fears many faces in my life? Because the truth is, the things that cause us fear don't need to be taken out and uprooted out of our lives because then they'll just be replaced with other things. What needs to grow is our awe and fear of the Lord that will displace those things. It will expunge the fear that's in our heart. It will drive the fear that's in our hearts away. So a little bit about the context of where we're at in Nehemiah chapter 6. If you're new here with us this morning, Nehemiah is a book about the exiles of Judah returning home, and the things that had to happen for them to return home to Jerusalem. So they were, they were taken out of the promised land, driven out of the promised land because of their disobedience from the Lord. Nehemiah, in a posture of humility, is, is driven to his knees by the Holy Spirit, and he repents of his sin. He repents of the sin of Israel, and God begins to guide them back into the promised land where they'll find comfort, where they'll find hope, but they'll feel God's presence more. But there's some effort that's involved in getting back to the promised land. Um, Nehemiah first has to leave Persia, where he's the king's cupbearer. He's the, he's the king's right-hand man. Everything is good in his hood, if you know what I mean. Everything's great for Nehemiah. He has to leave that, and he has to go to Jerusalem. And then he has to build this wall, because you know Jerusalem had lost its identity as a place, because the walls had been torn down. And so Nehemiah employs all these families <laughs> that are in Jerusalem, all these Israelites, to rebuild this wall. And this wall is about 30 feet tall, 5 miles in circumference, and about 15 feet thick. The stones on the wall are absolutely enormous. It is a huge wall. It is a huge endeavor. And we're told in Nehemiah 6 that they completed it in 52 days. But it wasn't like they just said, okay, Nehemiah was the foreman and they went out and they, they kind of built the wall and then they went off the job. It was one of those things where there was all of this opposition 
that surrounded them. There was this opposition on the outside with Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem. They were, they were surrounded by enemies. But then there was this opposition on the inside that we talked about last week, this injustice and oppression that happens. And now in Nehemiah 6, as the project is nearing completion, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem give Nehemiah one more try. And instead of going against the Israelites this time, they go against Nehemiah. And they're trying to get in his psyche. They're trying to get down into his identity as a person to make him halt the work. They're trying to take him off of the mission of God. So what we're going to do is we're going to spend uh, our time looking at fear in Nehemiah 6. And I found that fear has three faces that we see in Nehemiah chapter 6. There are many faces of fear, but three that we see here in Nehemiah 6. The first one is seduction. The second one is criticism. And the third face that we see is deceit. In all of these attempts, the enemy, the enemies of God, the devil himself, is trying to press these things in Nehemiah's heart to take him off the mission that God's called him to, to turn his face away from God and away from obeying God. So let's look at the first one and with seduction here. Nehemiah 6, uh, verses 1 through 4. So these guys, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, uh, are really trying to build their attempt to take Nehemiah off the wall here. And so here's what they say. They say, hey, in verse, uh, verse 2 here, hey, come and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. So what are they saying here? What does that mean? Well, this is about halfway in between Jerusalem and Samaria. So they're saying, hey, come on, let's meet on neutral ground. Let's talk this thing out. Let's work something out together here. You could use our help. You could use us to, you know, to quit breathing down your back. <laughs> and uh, we could use your help. Let's, let's come to a neutral ground here and let's, let's do this. But Nehemiah has this discernment that's present in his spirit because he is near to God. Because he's near to God, he has this discernment. And what does Nehemiah say? He says in verse 3, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? I'm doing a great work. Why should I come down? See, what, is, what does God show Nehemiah in Nehemiah 6? 1 through 4. He shows him that the attempt of these bad guys, you know, Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, is they want to isolate Nehemiah from God's people. They want to isolate Nehemiah from God's work that he's called them to, and therefore isolate Nehemiah from God's presence. That's the attempt that they're going after. And I'm reminded as I look in the Scriptures about how often, how often the enemy uses the tool of isolation to press fear into our hearts. This is, this is why it's so important for God's people to gather together regularly. This is why Hebrews 10.25 talks about this, that it's, that it's so important for us to get together. Because you know why? Because we're better when we're together, right? We're always better when we're together. Because we are able to fight off the attacks of the enemy because we're able to remind one another of the faithfulness of who God is and what He's called us to. And we are not strong on our own. So I think about Scriptures like Genesis 3. When uh, the serpent comes up to Adam and Eve and he begins to uh, seductively whisper lies into Eve's ear and Adam's there with her. And, and he takes them off the mission that God's called them to, which is to cultivate the land and multiply and reproduce. He pulls them aside and he says, hey, does God really know what's best for you? He makes them question the things that God's called them to. This is exactly the same thing that Tobiah 
and Sanballat and Geshem want to do to Nehemiah. They want to seductively get him away from the work that God's called him to so that he can't be reminded of God's faithfulness as he's participating in God's work. And they want to seduce him to believe lies to get him away from what God has called him to. We see the same thing with, in Luke 4 with Jesus. Jesus is in the desert uh, because he is, he is he's growing near to, he's near to the Father. He's fasting. He's thinking about the ministry at hand. He's worshiping the Lord. And the enemy comes and tempts him, doesn't he? He tempts him in the desert. And he tries, to, he tries to tempt him with food. He tries to tempt him with power. He tries to tempt him with all these things that in our flesh we'd really like to take advantage of. And Jesus, because he's Jesus, resists the enemy and he ultimately flees from him. I say this, church, and I, and I hope that you hear this with some gravity. The enemy wants to isolate you. He wants to isolate you because he wants to seduce you. He wants to seduce you in believing that where God has you right now and what God's called you to are things that are not important, that you should consider other things, that God doesn't have your best interest in mind, that God is punishing you right now. He wants to to have us start to look elsewhere. This is why discontentment in our life is so dangerous because, you know, we say things like, you know, my house isn't good enough so I should look elsewhere because I, I really want the, the, the best and bigger thing instead of thinking about how God has provided to give us what we actually have right now. You know, this is why uh, men in particularly, you know, you travel on business, you're, you're alone, you're isolated, the enemy seduces you and he begins to convince you that the spouse that he's given you is not good enough. And he whispers lies into your ears that you should go and you should look at other things. You should, you should pursue other relationships. It's because you are isolated. And when we're isolated, it is a dangerous place to be. I was speaking to a guy this week that travels a lot. And I was, I was talking with him about his plan for purity and resistance against the enemy. How, how are you going to stay connected, brother, while you're traveling this week? Because the enemy wants to seduce you and isolate you and rip you away from God's presence. That's what he wants to do. He comes, to, see, he comes to, to still kill and destroy, and he wants to take everything away from us. He wants to isolate us. The seductive whispers for students in here are this. Hey, your parents don't have your best interest in mind. They're just trying to keep the fun out of your life. And so you're tempted to rebel against what the, the authority that God has put in your life. You're tempted to rebel against it and choose what you think is best for your own life. And nothing but damage and pain comes from doing that. So to those of you that are single in the room, the enemy wants to whisper this, this lie in your ear that, that because you're single, that you, that you don't have any significance in the kingdom of God. That because you haven't found your significant other, therefore you're insignificant. That's a lie from the enemy. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Because we don't find our identity in our marital status, or our dating status, or any of those things. We don't find our identity there. I was thinking this week about Genesis chapter 19. Uh, when I was in Israel in November, we were, we were up on uh, this mountain of Masada, which was where King Herod's uh, fortress was, and it overlooks the Dead Sea. It overlooks the Dead Sea, and uh, our guide was telling us that recently they had found that, that just on the south end of the Dead Sea, they had found some remnants that, that indicated that that was the place where Sodom and Gomorrah once existed. That was the place where they were at. 
And I was flooded with this memory of Acts chapter 19 where, where uh, an angel of the Lord, God Himself, comes and rescues Lot from, this, from these, these evil cities, right? And He says, look, I'm going to take you and your family out of the city. I'm going to send you to a place that's safe because I'm about to rain down fire and sulfur on these cities because of their sinfulness. And Lot's wife, as they're walking, hears a seductive whisper. And what does she do? She looks over her shoulder back at that city that's full of sin, that's full of rebellion against God. And as she looks back at it and gazes and kind of wonders what she's going to be missing, what happens to her? She turns into a pillar of salt. I find it interesting that the Dead Sea has more salt content in it than any other body of water in the world. And because it has that salt content inside of it, there is absolutely no life form in the Dead Sea. No life to be found. So what's God tell us with that? The Dead Sea is a representation of what a life of rebellion and a life of sin and a life where we give in to the seductive whispers of the enemy, what it leads us to. Absolutely no life at all. There's no life to be found in the Dead Sea just like there's no life to be found in rebellion and disobedience against God. And Nehemiah, Nehemiah 6, 1-4, through 4, discerns all of the enemy's schemes. And he hears from the Lord. And it's not because he's got this supernatural knack for discerning things. It's because he's near to God. His gaze is fixed on God and he's hearing from the Lord that he's able to discern these things. He's his, his, his awe is fixed on God, His Father. We see as we continue through Nehemiah 6, verses 5-9, through 9, that, that they say, okay, four attempts to try to get Nehemiah to come down off the wall and, and meet us in the plain of Ono, that's not working. So let's try a different approach. You see, the enemy does this in our life too. When something's not working, he'll, just, he'll, move, to a, he'll, he'll move to a different attempt to get us to fear and to disobey the Lord. So this, this attempt here is this uh, attempt of criticism. So what do they do? Sanballat writes this public letter uh, that was supposed to, to the king, and then he starts gossiping about what he's written in this letter. He starts telling all of these lies, and he says things like, um, well, let's see, what does he say here? He says things like, um, it is reported among the nations in uh, Nehemiah 6, 6, and Geshem also says it. And so he's, he's building, he's building this, all, all of these lies on the fact that he's insecure. He's insecure of, of the power of Israel's God. Because we see this in, later on in Nehemiah 6 that they're trying to strike fear in Nehemiah, but ultimately what happens when that wall is constructed, they are reminded that the God of Israel is a powerful God and He's more powerful than anything else in the world. And so they're struck with the fear of who God is and His power. And so they spread these rumors, they spread these lies all over Judah. And what does Nehemiah do? In the midst of the false accusations, what does he do? Does he back down? Does he say, hey man, I gotta hunt? I gotta hunt these guys down and, and, and stop the lies. I've got, I've, got to, I've got to keep them from saying these things about me. I've got, to, I've got to hush my critics. No, he doesn't do that. And why does he not do that? Because the work that God's called him to and the presence of God in his life have defined his identity. I don't know about you, but I am often tempted to come down off the wall and to silence the critics. I mean, I hate it when someone says something bad about me, especially when it's not true. Even if it is true, I'm like, hey, just don't say that, right? And what I'm learning is that the posture of my heart that wants to go and extinguish the fire, 
comes from a posture of insecurity because what has been struck within me is a chord within my identity. There's something inside of me that is not at rest, something that seems insufficient when there's critical things that are being said about me that aren't true. But Nehemiah was secure in what God had called him to do. Nehemiah was secure in the fact that he knew that that he was exactly in God's will in that moment. Jesus does the same thing, right? I mean, Jesus is having people say lies about him all the time. I mean, the very fact that he was put on a cross was all a conspiracy of lies. But God used it for good and glory, right? That's what he does. Just like we sang earlier today, this is exactly who God is. So how does Nehemiah respond? Does Nehemiah protect himself? Does he go after it? Does he try to put those things out? He simply says this, Nehemiah 6.9, Oh God, strengthen the work of my hands. I'm, this just hit me, but in, in the book of Acts, when, um, when, Peter are coming at, when, when people are coming after uh, the disciples, after Jesus has risen from the dead, the Holy Spirit has been given, there's a prayer, I think it's in either Acts 4 or 5, there's a prayer that's offered up. And, and there's persecution happening, right? The prayer that they offer up isn't, God, rescue us from all these enemies that are trying to kill us. But it's, God, give us boldness. Give us boldness to endure and to proclaim the truths of the gospel no matter who's coming after me. This is exactly what Nehemiah does here as well. Jesus never runs away from the criticism. And He gives us by His Spirit the power to do the exact same thing, guys. Our temptation to want to do this, our temptation to want to to, to put out the fires of criticism that surround us is an identity issue. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. What's going on inside of us when we want to when we want to control outcomes, especially when it goes against what people are critiquing us on or criticizing us on, I would propose that there is a resurrection happening within us of the flesh of the old man. He's he's trying to come out with inside of us and to bring himself back to life. Listen to the words of Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. This is key right here, listen. For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, underline that in your Bible if you've got a pen, when Christ, who is your life, appears then you will also appear with Him in glory. So what's he saying right here? What is is the Apostle Paul saying? The Scriptures say in 1 John 3 that perfect love casts out fear. That perfect love casts out fear. And so if perfect love casts out fear of the devil, fear of man in our lives, and we're, we're dwelling in the confidence and security of being found as sons and daughters of God, then fear doesn't have a place in our life. But what often happens in our sanctification process is that fear raises its ugly head up again. And we we are tempted and seduced to listen to the whispers of fear. Fear of men, fear of the devil. And, And what's happening inside of us is that we have forgotten Colossians 3, 
3 and 4. For you have died. The old man has died. And because he's died, our lives are now hidden with Christ in God. So when Jesus went to the grave, friends, he took fear of man and fear of the devil to the grave with him for God's sons and his daughters. And this is why he says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. The resurrection has massive implications on how we see the subject of fear. It has massive implications because fear of man and fear of the, the devil himself are buried in the grave when we're in Christ. They have, no, they have no place in our life anymore. Now, I don't want you to go out and beat yourself up because you've got this, these fear issues in your life. God is continuing to work those things out in you. But it's very important to see that those things... They can very much be sinful, as we're going to talk about in just a second. They can, be, they can be issues of sin in our lives, and we need to repent of those things. So let's continue looking at uh, our, our, our third face of fear here, which is deceit. Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 10 through 14. This is, I'm going to read this for us because it's kind of loaded here. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehitabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. But I said to them, such, such, such a man as I run away, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He was a hired gun. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid, and here, here's the key point right here, that I should be afraid, and then what? Act in this way and sin, act in sin. So they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. So for Nehemiah to come down off that wall was for him to sin against the God of Israel. I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't think I view my fear of man as sin often enough. I think it's just something that I think that I have to live with, because it keeps erupting in my life. Friends, I think if we would repent of fear of man issues more often, that we might find more freedom. There's no freedom to be found within ourselves. There's only freedom to be found in the resurrected Jesus who took fear to the grave, and he's buried it. And our life is now found in Jesus. So Nehemiah says, why should I run? That I should be afraid and act in sin. You see, this guy Shemaiah was a priest. A guy you can trust, right? And he's, he's acting like he's afraid in his house. And so Nehemiah comes and visits him. And he's like, hey man, I got this plan. You know, I know that only priests are supposed to go into the temple. But there's this, there's this clause where someone that's seeking asylum can go into the temple. And so their, their case is able to be heard. Just come with me in the temple. And we can hide out in there. And Sambalat hired him to, to take him out when he gets into the temple. And Nehemiah hears from the Lord... And he says, no, I'm not going in there. I know you're a hired gun. I'm not going in there. It's a death warrant. And I'm not even afraid of you killing me as much as I am disobeying God that I would sin against the God of Israel. He says, I'm not going in there. I'm not going to do what you say. So here's my question. How do, we, how do we respond to these fear of man issues? There's a, there's a quote by a Puritan uh, Richard Baxter that I want to read for us right here. And he's answering this question, how, how do we respond to the fear of man? 
He says this, set God against man and His wisdom against their deceit and His love and mercy against their malice and cruelty and His power against their impotency and His truth and omniscience and righteousness against their slanders and lies and His promises against their threatenings. And then, if yet thou art inordinately afraid of man, Here's what's going on inside of you. If you're still afraid when you've done that, when you've compared what's going on to who God is, thou must confess that in that measure, thou believes not in God. You're not believing in God in that moment. If God is not wise enough and good enough and just enough and powerful enough to save you, so far as it is best for thee to be saved, then he is not God. Away with atheism, and then fear not man. So what's he saying? What's going on inside of us when these crippling fear of man issues paralyze us? We're not believing in God. He uses the word atheist there. I thought that was really interesting. That we're not believing that God is who God, the Bible says God is. And so in cases that we find ourselves like that, we've got to repent. We've got to turn back to God. We've got to turn back to His loving kindness got to turn back to his mercy for us because the awe of God displaces the many fears of man so here's my question as we as we get in what's this what's this look like for us to repent these fear of man issues Uh, I was reading uh, this old fairy tale from 1874 by this guy named George McDonald it's called uh, the princess and the goblin okay the Princess and the Goblin is a fairy tale. And here's, here's kind of the premise of the story, and you'll see where I'm going. Is that there's this young princess who is afraid of goblins. And it's, it's paralyzing her. It's, it's causing her all kinds of angst inside. And so she goes to this grandmother who is kind of like the fairy or whatever. And the grandmother says, hey, hey you just come back to me whenever you get afraid, and I'll remind you that those goblins are not real. She says, here, I'm going to give you this ring. And I want you to put this ring on your finger. And this ring has an invisible thread connected to it. And whenever you, whenever you get afraid, just come back to me. Just, just sort that thread down and it'll lead you right back to me. And so she gets afraid and, and she tries it a couple times and goes back to the grandmother. But there's this one time where she's going back to the grandmother and she comes up upon this pile of stones and the thread goes right through the pile of stones. In that moment, she assumes that the grandmother is not on the other side of the thread. And so what she does is she turns around and she tries to go back where she came from. But when she turns around, the thread disappears. So then she turns back, the thread reappears. But she's still got this huge mountain of stones right there. And so, kind of in a moment of panic, she says, well, let me just see if I can move these stones out of the way. She moves one of the stones out of the way. The thread tightens up a little bit more. She can feel that the grandmother is on the other end of the string. She moves some more and she begins to walk through the pile of stones. Friends, this is what repentance is for us. It's coming back to God. And and not everything in your life is going to make sense. The way that God is conforming you into His image, the way that God is, uh, is causing you to delight in Him through the circumstances that He is, is up to Him. There's no control you have of it. But the control you do have is to come back to Him always when fear erupts itself in your life. And here's, 
Here's the consequence of not doing that, okay? This is one of the consequences of not repenting and letting fear linger, is that it turns itself into anxiety in our hearts. You see, fear is one of those things that you can kind of pinpoint. I'm afraid of the closet right there, Daddy. Or let's say a, a really fast car drives by and you jump out of the way. You're afraid of that car. But if we don't resolve the issue of fear and turn from it and understand that we're okay, that we're not harmed, fear creeps down into our hearts and it turns into this, this form of fear that's just, just really hard to pinpoint. It's kind of this ambiguous thing that, that I think we call anxiety. Tim Keller says that anxiety is like this. That it's like, that it's like a 34 degree rainy day that never ends. I mean, you just, if it could just go to 32 degrees in snow, or if the sun could just come out, then I could deal with the weather. But the longer that we let fear linger in our hearts, the more often it turns into anxiety. And the more often we can't pinpoint it, and it makes it more difficult to repent. And so the invitation is clear tonight. This today, not tonight. The invitation is clear. Turn back to the Lord. Turn to Him. Feel that the string is taut as you turn to Him. Fear is eradicated because His perfect love is made to rest inside of our hearts. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that there is no fear in the presence of Your perfect love. That, In fact, when Your perfect love grabs a hold of our hearts, that fear has no place in it. Lord, I know it's really easy to get up here and talk about fear. And it's another thing for us to go out and to actually trust You when deceitfulness, when criticism, when seduction find their ways into our lives. God, I pray we be reminded of the good truths of the gospel this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.